Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash historyhack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash historyhack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am so beyond excited today because it is one of my most interesting subjects, not quite my subject, but we're going to go down that road. Alex, tell us who we've got today. So um, we let you come out to play for a Holocaust episode because we're talking about Italy. So we're welcoming back Christian Jennings, who is a British writer, freelance foreign correspondent and the author of eight works of nonfiction. Uh, he writes all over the place and he's done episodes with us before. He has books on the Gothic line, Flashpoint Trieste, The First Battle of the Cold War, Syndrome K, How Italy Resisted the Final Solution. So we are going to talk about Italy and the Holocaust today. Christian, welcome. Thanks very much, guys. It's been a while. How are you doing? Hanging in there, keeping going, been keeping busy um, writing another book, this time changing slightly from mainstream Italian World War II history to how Italy resisted the final solution. So a cross between Italian World War II history and, and the Holocaust. We always talk about the Nuremberg Laws in Germany in 1930s. But we don't talk about anything else. We don't talk about what happened in Hungary with the racial laws and especially Italy. And I'm assuming most of our listeners have no idea that there were racial laws in Italy itself. In 19, up until 1938, in my book, Syndrome K, whose title I'll explain in, in due course, uh, follows the, the story of two or three Italian, Italian families in Rome and, and Turin who... In two cases, um, there were families who were firm supporters of uh, Mussolini's fascist party. Ettore Ovazza, a rich banker in Turin, was an absolute committed fascist. He wrote to Mussolini all the time saying how great he was. Um, The Italian Jews were both socially incredibly well assimilated into Italian society over hundreds of years. And at a political level... The Italian Jews made up um, some of the main component parts of Mussolini's government, his government ministries, the army, the head of the air force, his financial supporters. And so while the Germans were clamping down legally and physically upon their Jewish population in the 1930s, the Italians were not following suit. Mussolini 
didn't want to follow Hitler's persecution of, of the Jews because he, he looked down upon the way in which, which uh, the Germans were treating their, uh, you know, th their Jewish population and Mussolini could see exactly what was coming. And Mussolini also knew which side his bread was buttered on. He knew where his money was coming from, who his political supporters were. And he, he saw no need to do it. There was no, there was nothing kind of disturbing, you know, the, the Italian, the Italian empire, the Italian government that could be improved by a persecution of the Jews. However, this changed in 1938, where in my book, there's a teenage boy who comes to school and is told, as of tomorrow, you can no longer go to school. You can't take your exams here. You and your sisters have become non-people. You don't exist. And the same happened with a teenage girl, um, Virginia Montalcini, at a high school in, in Turin. Um, she was in the same year, the same class as um, the writer Primo Levi. And they were told, along with the other Jewish, Italian Jewish children in the school, no more school for you. You can't take your exams. You have ceased to be part of the social, racial or professional system here. From that point onwards, what happened to the Jews of Italy? It was not deportation to concentration camps, violence, death. They were interned in a whole series of internment camps, former army barracks, schools, hospitals, government buildings across Italy, many of them in the south of Italy, where Jews from the north of Italy would, would be taken, where the conditions range from fairly arduous to quite, to quite acceptable. Nobody was being killed at this point. And the implementation of the Holocaust and the final solution in Italy only began when the Germans occupied the country after the July 1943 armistice, when the Germans occupied Italy in August, September 1943 was when it first began. How does Mussolini's government respond to the Holocaust? Is this is the story that you'd expect of fascists supporting fascists? It wasn't before 1943. After 1943, it was because yeah. um, after 1943, if the Germans said jump, Mussolini answered how high. Mm. Um, he was, they were his only chance of, of survival. And the fascists who remained with Mussolini's residual government in the north of Italy after the German occupation of the country in autumn 1943 were avowed anti-Semites, anti most of them. And Mussolini was determined to do whatever the Germans wanted to, to keep his allies on side. Up until then, up until summer 1943, before the Italians had changed sides, Italy had, curious enough, become a, a country of refuge for Jews fleeing Austria, Germany, Poland, Hungary, and other places like that. Um, the population, the Jewish population of Italy, in the beginning of um, 1942, when the Vansi Conference convened by Reinhard Heydrich from the Reich Security Main Office in Berlin established <clears throat> the concept of the final solution. 
Adolf Eichmann estimated that there are approximately 55, between 52 and 55,000 um, Jews in Italy. In fact, the full number was about 45,000. A lot of them managed to escape, firstly, to Italian occupied areas in France and Croatia, where in fact the Italian army would often hide the Jews. For instance, this happened quite often in, in Croatia. The Jews of Italy could also find it easier to get visas from embassy, Western embassies in Rome um, to emigrate to the United States and to South American countries as well. And their story of the Italian Jews before 1943 was one of escape and evasion after the Germans arrived it became one of fight and flight. Do you know <clears throat> we're going to come up to this question and everybody comes up with this question one way or another comes up from conspiracy theories and and all sorts of crazy people bring up uh, the Vatican so I'm going to bring it up not because I'm a crazy conspiracy theorist because I'm actually genuinely interested in this so what was the Vatican's response to all of this because they are pretty much stuck in a very awkward position being surrounded by Mussolini's fascist Italy at this point, aren't they? The Vatican were in a very tricky position because Mussolini's relationship with the Vatican was one of Italian dealing with Italian. I mean, it was partly due to the laws that he had passed at the Vatican City um, itself had been recognised as independent territory in 1929, um, it was. Um, and Mussolini knew very, very well that the Vatican's hold, the Catholic Church's hold on the loyalty of most Italians was far stronger than fascism. So Mussolini wanted the Vatican where they were. The... The Vatican's stance about the increasing persecution of the Jews in Europe was to speak out about it in subtle undertones. Pius XII's policy was essentially to do to be to say relatively little and try and do behind the scenes as much as possible. And he's been blamed for doing, doing too little, for saying nothing, for not protesting about the deportation of Jews from Rome in um, uh, October 1943. Um, but if, in fact, if you look both through looking at... Um, signals and information sent by the Vatican, statements made by the Vatican, the absolute vast volume of archive material that's available from the Vatican archives. If you piece it all together with what the Germans were saying, the Swiss were saying, the Italians were saying, the British were saying, um, you see that the Pope was essentially assisting from about 1938, the anti-Hitler resistance. Secondly, he knew very, very, very strongly once the final solution began in Europe, in Holland, for instance. At one point, he made a particular protest about the detention, deportation to Auschwitz-Birkenau of 200 Dutch Catholics, um, which prompted the, the SS in, in the Netherlands 
to whisk them off to the concentration camp system. And the Pope um, told his private secretary, who noted it down in the diary, she kept every day of the Pope's sort of statements. His feeling is that if this is what happens when he protests about 200 people, what would happen if he protested about two or four million people? He was balancing the effects of what he might say with what action would actually result from it. And he knew by 1943 that when the Germans arrived in, in Italy, that the Jews of Italy would be in their sights. As early as 41 and 42, he'd been transferring money from the, the Vatican Bank um, in 1942, had assets uh, of around $2 billion, um, the same as uh, any major industrial country. The Pope began transferring this money across to banks across Italy, enabling the properties of the Vatican that is owned in Italy, the thousands of churches, convents, palazzos, houses, apartments, to be put at the disposal of hiding Jews if and when the time came. The second thing is the Pope, the Pope knew that if he spoke out in, for instance, in Italy against what was happening to the Jews, the enormous persecution of um, non-Jewish Poles, for instance, could turn from being a, per a persecution of people who were persecuted simply because they were Polish to because they were Catholics. And Poland particularly had a huge, huge Catholic population. And the Pope saw and, and wrote it down, and his Cardinal Secretary of State wrote it down as well. He saw a direct link between how he criticised the Germans and what might actually happen to, to Catholics in Europe. And he, the Catholic Church and the Vatican in many ways didn't help themselves because they didn't help, they didn't try to be understood and they didn't make their position clear. But behind the scenes, the more you investigate the links between the American and British diplomats based inside the Vatican, the more you look at the code breaking between the Vatican's codes, Bletchley Park, the Germans, the Swiss, the Red Cross, the more it becomes apparent that the Vatican were doing an awful lot behind the scenes, but very little up front. And as a result, the Pope himself have received a lot of criticism about this. He also... He had a very, very, very weak papal nuncio, his ambassador, his representative in Germany, um, Cardinal Orsenigo, who was an apologist for, for the Nazis and refused to protest on, you know, quite often the, on three different occasions that I tracked down, the Pope actually said to him, you have to find out what is happening about the news of the final solution in 1943 or 1944. And this cardinal in um, Berlin simply either fudged the issue or refused. The answer to your question is the Pope was a much criticised, but unfairly so, um, head of an institution that did a huge amount of work behind the scenes, but not enough up front to be able to redeem its own image. What was life like in Italy for Jews trying to evade arrest? Hiding, escape, evasion, 
changing your name, getting a new identity card. The family that I looked at, who were family middle class, prosperous textile traders from central Rome, um, this before 1943, realised that to hide you had to you had to trade. Italy was a very, very, very well documented, very bureaucratic country under under fascism. Um, it was a country of informers, delatore, as they're known in Italian. People sneaked and spied on each other um, to the fascist regime. And Jews and became very, very, very visible. So life for them became one of hiding, trying to, firstly, they tried to escape to South America, which meant getting visas, the Vatican helped arrange a visa program with Brazil, for instance, to the United States, but the Americans were very, very, very slow and loath to change their very limited um, refugee visa quota system annually to go anywhere near helping um, Europe's Jews. They hid in Croatia, uh, they hid in Italian-occupied southern France, Sardinia, Sicily, Corsica. Italian families and the Italian population at a very general level helped, helped hide Jews, helped conceal them, helped falsify um, their identities and huge amounts of money started coming from the Jewish Refugee Distribution Committee and other Jewish aid groups in the United States and Switzerland, channeled by Switzerland to the Catholic Church and Jewish groups inside Italy, enabling Jews to get false identities and, and to hide. Prior to the Germans' arrival, it was about hiding and trying to escape. After the Germans arrived, it was taking refuge in farms, houses, homes, attics, convents, where you just simply hid. It was it was a kind of Anne Frank style existence for many of the Jews of Italy for from autumn 43 to when the Allies progressively liberated Italy from Rome northwards from June 44 onwards. So my question is, is this where Syndrome K comes in? So tell us what it actually was. Syndrome K was after the uh, the first roundup of Italian Jews was on October the 16th, 1943, when Adolf Eichmann, who'd been tasked by Ernst Kaltenbrunner in Berlin with spearheading the final solution in Rome. Eichmann took an SS Einsatz commando into Rome and his first operation was to try and surround and round up the Italian Jews from the capital's old Jewish ghetto, which sits just on one side of the Tiber, not far from the Vatican. There are approximately 10,000 Jews living in this, in this tightly knit network of streets and houses. The SS surrounded it at dawn, and despite this, um, 9,000 of Rome's Jews out of 10,000 something escaped. The Germans deported just over a thousand to Auschwitz on the 18th of October, leaving a huge number of um, Italian Jews in Rome trying to find places of refuge. Across the River Tiber on an island from the old Jewish ghetto, 
stood and stands today. I went there the other day, the Fate Bene Flatelli Hospital. It was established in 1585 and was part of the Order of St. John, the Hospitality of God and an ancient Roman uh, medieval order and was theoretically neutral territory. And to this hospital, Jewish families and Jewish individuals would cross taking refuge. And there at the hospital, the director, um, Giovanni Bolomeo, and one of the, the doctors, Adriano Ossicini, came up with a plan. They would hide Jewish individuals and Jewish families within the hospital by putting them in closed wards and asking them to feign the symptoms of a completely fictitious respiratory disease, a highly infectious respiratory disease, which sounds very familiar to all of us in the in the pandemic nowadays. But the Jews were were asked to feign the symptoms of tuberculosis. And the Italian doctors decided to name this mysterious disease syndrome K, K for Koch's bacillus, which was tuberculosis, but also K from Albert Kesselring, the, Ita uh, the German um, high commander in um, Italy, and Herbert Kapler, the head of the Gestapo in Rome. And what they did with hiding these Jewish individuals and Jewish families disguised as patients in the hospital, is they had to enter into the hospital's log that these Jewish families were actually ill with something. So they just called it, they made up a disease and called it Syndrome K that was just completely fictitious. And Adriano Ossicini, the, um, the doctor who claims to have invented the name for it, said that when the German search parties turned up, it didn't take them very long um, didn't take them very long to be put off and disrupted and to disappear because, as he said, the Germans were neither very, very clever nor very, very brave. So once they sort of found out there was a highly infectious disease doing the rounds, they left the hospital. It's brilliant. Um, how is Bletchley Park involved in this? It, it's genius. Um, it's in connection with what you call the Holocaust codes. What are they? What I call the Holocaust codes for want of a better technical kind of overview title in my book. Bletchley Park was involved in the tracking of the implementation of the final solution in Italy because Bletchley had from... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. About the time of operation, the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, onwards, June the 22nd, 1941, Bletchley Park had begun to intercept, well, Bletchley didn't intercept there, intercepting outstations at places like Bow Manor Hall in um, Leicestershire intercepted the messages. They began to intercept and decrypt at Bletchley large numbers of radio messages coming from the SS and the German police on the Eastern Front, which were detailing mass ex- executions of large numbers of Jews. Churchill included this in one of his speeches in November 1941. And as a result, the um, head of the SS police in on the Eastern Front um, actually made instructions that um, the SS and German police should change from just radio messages to either handheld code books or using far more doubly encrypted Enigma messages. A complicated way of saying that the British had started cracking what the Germans were doing in the final solution. By April 1942, Bletchley Park had begun to decrypt intercepts that were coming from the same places at the same time every day in the same format, in the same code. The code was called, um, the code was called Orange. The codebreakers of Bletchley Park gave nicknames based upon fruit to SS codes, grapes. Um, grapefruit, quince, pear. Orange one was the SS codes from inside the concentration camp system. And at first, bless you, didn't know what they were because they were just columns of columns of numbers. And they were the same every day. At the beginning of every day and the end of the day, they would intercept the same messages, just rows and rows of figures. Then they realised what these actually were which was they were the different numbers of arrivals um, departing and and it was the prisoner prisoner inmate, the vital statistics, as Bletchley called it, of approximately 10 camps within the concentration camp system, predominantly within um, Auschwitz, Dachau, Mauthausen, Sachsenhausen and Neuengamp, not in the extermination camps in Poland. And Bletchley cracked this by a piece of extraordinary luck. The columns of figures were all laid out in X thousand people arrived on day, day, a given day. The number of what the SS called departed, which meant died, were gassed, escaped, were shot, died from disease, was the next figure. So with the the existing camp population plus the new arrivals minus those who died gave the number of inmates in each camp every single day the germans were very thorough they were very teutonic they reported everything all the time about everything within the concentration camp system and when you read these messages it's the micro detail of the comp commandants wanting to report everything up the chain of command, not to be caught out, not to be found wanting, not to be criticised. And Bletchley saw that 
At the end of every day, the number of inmates in the camp, say 10,000 in camp X, obviously at eight o'clock in the seven or eight o'clock in the evening, that number was also going to be the same as at the beginning of the following day. The SS used the same number of the existing camp population at the end of the day, the existing camp population at the beginning of next day in subsequent days messages, even though they changed their coding systems. So Bletchley had a crib to break into, a numerical crib. And then they realised they weren't looking at words. They were looking at just lists of figures. And then it started to make sense. And then they realised that these messages were all coming from all the same places, all with lists of figures, day after day after day after day. And then they began to be able to crack a whole message system around them. And I called these the, the Holocaust codes, which were, I've read quite a lot of them. There are a certain amount of them available. There are an awful lot of them, I think, been burnt, destroyed, lost. The camps themselves destroyed a lot of them. But they give a picture of the, the daily ebb and flow of life, but predominantly death within Germany's concentration camp system. There's everything from, you know, guards committing suicide, typhus epidemics, the lack of people to guard the, the camps because they've all gone on leave or fled or run away, SS guards who can't be trusted with weapons, the fear of rebellion within the camps, not enough food, a lot of German thoroughness about logistics and details and numbers, you know, how to bring enough food from here to there. Wasn't it terrible that 80 year old men labouring in a quarry in Mauthausen weren't physically fit enough to lift huge lumps of rock? Um, the logistics of reporting that Camp X had produced two tonnes of human hair. What was the best thing to do with it that would most assist the, the war effort? It's the it's the logistics of mass death that you're reading in these messages that, that Bletchley cracked. And the difficulty with the Holocaust code was that the more and more Bletchley knew about it, it was getting the Allied infrastructure to know about it and then to be able to do something about it. But bringing it back to Italy, what it meant was that by October 1943, when Ernst Kaltenbrunner, uh, Heydrich's successor, the head of the Reich Security Main Office in Berlin, who was overseeing the final solution, not just in Italy, but everywhere else, when he gave was giving orders to Herbert Kaplan, the head of the Gestapo in Rome, and to Adolf Eichmann about what to do about the final solution in Italy, the messages they were sending from Berlin to Rome and getting from Berlin back to Rome, the Allies were reading the whole lot of them almost in real time because they'd been cracking them for about a year. So the Allies passed these messages to the Swiss and to their diplomats in, in the Vatican as well. They in turn informed the whole Vatican infrastructure. So there was a certain, and, and the, the Germans were... The Germans were trying to get consensus among themselves for the implementation of the, of the Holocaust in Italy. The German foreign ministry one thought you know, Italian Jews could still be just detained as labourers and used in places um, you know, to build camps or just taken 
to work in factories. Um, it was the SS who wanted to exterminate them. And so there are a lot of messages backwards and forwards between the foreign ministry in Berlin, the head of the SS in Berlin, Himmler, and the Allies could read these and saw what was coming. And basically there was a certain amount of forewarning based upon this. And the Holocaust codes, as I, as I call them, my writing about them touches the tip of a huge and very horrible iceberg in this book. And there's more about it in my next book, but was also backed up by the communications that all sides were sending every single day. The, Va the Vatican's codes, um, you know, their simplest ones were relatively easy to decrypt, but contained nothing of importance, whereas their very, very important messages went in, you know, a code called KIC Green, which the Americans and the British hardly broke into at all. And the Holocaust codes were the unseen electronic signals heartbeat of the German administration of the final solution and against the human stories of of how the Holocaust proceeded in Italy and how Italians helped Jews resisted and escaped from it you have the backdrop which is the whole electronic communication to what was going on in the Holocaust. So let's move on to the idea and um, to basically what the Jews were doing um, in Italy and talk about the Jewish partisans. Tell us a little bit about them. The Jews had a variety of, um, of options. A lot of them went to hide in convents, um, Catholic churches. I follow in, in my book, The Progress of One Family, who went to hide in a Swedish convent in the middle of Rome. Some Jews ended up fighting with uh, Italian partisan groups, for instance, in the town of Casale Monferrato, which is a beautiful town in between Turin and Milan in northwestern Italy. The son of the rabbi in this uh, old, from the, the old Jewish synagogue in Casale Monferrato, joined um, Augusto Segre, joined a local partisan group, which was made up of a lot of Jews, and fought against the Germans in and around Turin. And as the German occupation of Italy progressed, the Germans occupied in August, September, October 43, the Allies invaded in summer 43. It became a slogging match as the Allies moved slowly up Italy and the Germans retreated. Behind the ever-decreasing German front line, the Germans were carrying out their operations to arrest and deport Jews. Um, partisan groups, particularly those uh, which had Jewish members, were trying to make this as hard as possible. And what they were trying, what they tried to do was to, they saw that when Jews were arrested, they were detained in detention centres in Genoa, Turin, around Milan, and in three other detention centres across the north of Italy. And the partisans saw that if they could try and disrupt road transport between the main cities, and in any cases, if they could disrupt railway transport, then the Germans might be able to round up Jews, but they wouldn't be able to get them out of the country. And getting Jewish deportation convoys out of the country to Auschwitz and Mauthausen 
the latter in Austria, the former obviously, as you all know, in southern Poland, meant that trains had to go up to northeastern Italy, go across the Alps, uh, either through the Brenner Pass or curve around the far end north of Trieste and go into to cross Austria. And there are an awful lot of railway lines and the partisans did their best to to try and disrupt the railway infrastructure and slow down the uh, slow down the German deportation of the Jews. What the partisans actually achieved best in slowing down the process of the Holocaust in Italy was to be able to arrest and deport Jews in other countries in occupied Europe where the Holocaust was being carried out. The Germans had been successful of this because they occupied, invaded the country first, forcibly pacified it and then arrested people. In Italy, they were trying to fight a war against the Allies on the front line, against the partisans behind the front line. There was no logistical stability or security for them to carry out their arrest operations of Jews at all. Um, the other thing is they couldn't they couldn't differentiate Italian Jews from any other Italians at all. The majority of the Germans in Italy had never been outside of Germany before. Um, they certainly didn't speak Italian. They certainly had no idea what these people looked like. And the other thing is that the, the Jews in Italy were, were helped by catastrophic German incompetence. I mean, everybody has this idea that the final solution was a sort of ruthless piece of flawless Teutonic planning in exterminating part of the human race. Yes, to a certain extent it was, but the cogs in the machine that carried it out were human German cogs. And human German cogs from the, the SS, who far too often were interested in looting, plundering, enriching themselves, and less in actually deporting Jews. And one of the shortcomings, the Germans in Italy, the SS particularly, and you see this again in the decrypted messages between Berlin and Rome, looting gold in Rome and transferring it back to Berlin occupies a huge amount of message time for the Germans. Where is that 50 kilos of gold? Which station has it arrived at? You said it would arrive tomorrow. We haven't got it yet. We need it. They were they were robbing countries blind, the SS. It was part of their economic enrichment programme. The other thing is that of the senior SS officers and Gestapo officers in Italy implementing the final solution, a substantial number of them at any given point were allied double agents. And as the war, war's end got closer and closer, this just simply increased. And the number of I would say nine or 10 of the senior SS figures in Italy, in Genoa, Turin, Milan, Verona, Rome, Bologna, um, either were or went on to be allied agents um, during or after the war. And I focus in my book of one particular officer called um, SS Lieutenant Guido Zimmer, who was based in Genoa and Milan, his job was stealing property from Jews and putting them on trains to Mauthausen. He did a lot of stealing their property. He didn't put too many of them on trains because he was running a separate scheme where he would take bribes off them to let them escape. Um, 
he was also working with the Americans to try and bring about a, an early peace in northern Italy, so-called Operation Sunrise. He was also working with Italian partisans to make sure that his business schemes weren't discovered. And like a lot of these Germans, he was catastrophically stupid. He kept a diary. He wrote all of this down and he saw which way the, the war was going. And he thought he may end up testifying in court against his former colleagues. So he wrote down every single thing he did. And his diary from in 1940, late 43 to 1945, is just a litany of conspiracy, duplicity, lying, cheating, theft amongst the, the SS in northern Italy. In one case, this SS officer realises that one of his main business informants and contacts has been arrested and is on a train to Mauthausen, arrested by other SS colleagues for being partly Jewish. And SS Lieutenant Zimmer takes a 250,000 lira bribe to be paid in gold or foreign currency from Italian colleagues of this man to get this person off the train to Mauthausen before he's executed at the end. And he sends signals furiously to each station along the line where this deportation train is going until it gets to Austria saying... Listen, guys, so-and-so has got to be taken off the train before it gets to Mauthausen. Terrible mistake. Please send him home. Um, because SS Lieutenant Guido Zimmer knows that if he doesn't get this person off the train, he's going to lose a huge amount of money. Personal enrichment schemes were very big with the half and SS. And the other thing as well is that the German Wehrmacht, in some cases, you know, hated what the SS were doing against Jews, as did in three particular cases, the German diplomatic service. There's a plaque um, in Florence to Gerhard Wolf, who was the German consul in Florence in 1943 and 1944, who did a lot to help save Jews, despite in the face of, um, you know, his fellow countrymen's operations to deport them have to ask you some um one of the chapters in your book is all about an ss double agent who were they and what impact did they have he was called ss lieutenant guido zimmer and the uh, his activities which i've just described of um stealing money from jews um taking bribes from in return for not arresting and deporting them um at the same time, he was part of a network of SS officers who, from late 1944 onwards, were trying to negotiate a separate early peace in northern Italy um, with the American OSS. Uh, the Office of Strategic Services negotiated in, in Switzerland itself. And the the kind of coterie of senior SS officers in Italy knew very, very, very well that um, they stood a very high chance of being chased down for war crimes after the war. So saw operating as agents for the Allies as a way to escape prosecution and probable hanging. 
The final question while I'm taking a very deep breath. Uh, what were things like post-war? I mean, the Jewish community, were they able to rebuild their lives in Italy? And the last and final question, just to add another one into the mix, is what about the reprisals against the fascist collaborators? <clears throat> Reprisals against fascist collaborators, um, there were a lot of them in the uh, immediate aftermath of the war, um, particularly by, by partisan groups, as um, the partisan groups, both on the left and the right of the political spectrum, you know, allied with and became part of political parties. They took a lot of... Um, a lot of revenge on collaborators. Um, and the scenario for Jews in Italy after the war was <clears throat> a lot of them, in my book about Trieste, I write about returning Jewish families who come home. Um, they had a lot of, they came home to a kind of wrecked, destroyed, exhausted, impoverished country. And a lot of them had a very, very hard time persuading people about what had happened in the Holocaust and what they... This was partly Primo Levi's problem, was that he couldn't persuade people back home in Italy about what he'd actually seen. In 1945, the number of people who had actually seen what was happening inside concentration camps had predominantly been killed. Yes, a lot of American soldiers and British soldiers and Russian soldiers had liberated um, the concentration camp system. But the world and the world had seen newsreels and photographs, but the Italian Jews returning home found it very hard to persuade their fellow countrymen about what they'd seen in many cases. And the other thing that happened uh, for a lot of Italian Jews was that huge numbers of them um, emigrated to Israel. Um, and Italy itself, particularly the ports on the eastern Adriatic coast of um, Bari, Ancona, and Trieste became points where uh, Jews would board uh, boats to take them illegally, deemed by the British, legally by everybody else to take them to Israel. And Jews, in again in the book, there's uh, stuff about Jewish soldiers in the British Army, who, when the war finishes, help set up a network of um, children's camps for Jewish refugee survivors of concentration camps in Poland, Ukraine, Germany and Austria. And they take these children off to, off to Israel. Christian, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. That was incredibly enlightening. You know me, always ready for a Holocaust podcast. But um, do you know what? I really desperately need to grab a copy of your book, physical copy of your book, and um, read up a little bit more because some of it for me has been new, uh, some of it not so new, but mm -hmm. you're always willing, to, for me anyway, I just want to add that. Um, but it will be very interesting to find out a little bit more and read, especially read more about the Pope because I found that incredibly interesting. So thank you so much for joining us. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 
10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.